When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Tragic death of one of America's most gifted film directors, Alan Pakula. That was very upsetting. I'm a pretty steely guy, except that one really got to me. Just removed from the world. Nabokov writes about it, and he says, beauty always dies. He had an affinity for women, and I loved him for that. What Alan and I shared was this sense of paranoia about where the truth was. Oh, he would be very turned on by this particular moment in time. Yeah, I would think so, yes. Pakula was an artist, that's all. He was an artist. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Thank you so much for joining us for this very special bonus episode. Uh, throughout the show, if you're a really obsessive listener, you would have noticed I spoke to a friend of mine uh, who's actually working on the secret handshake project called Jacob Hall, who said, Blake, do you know that there's an actual documentary about Alan Pakula right now called Going for Truth? I got to see it at a film festival. I you know, rightly so. I think if anyone was listening, freaked out that A, I hadn't heard about it and B, I hadn't had a chance to see it. And, you know, 2020 happened and uh, this really excellent film is now finally making the rounds. Um, and in Australia, it's going to the Jewish International Film Festival, it's screening around um, the place in Australia at the moment. And I'm lucky enough to talk to a man who is self-confessed rather than being obsessed with Star Wars as a kid, obsessed with the work of Alan Bakula, a man after my <laughs> own heart. Athimiele, thank you so much for being a part of all the President's Minutes uh, and uh, here to talk about your film. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So I've, as part of the research of us chatting, uh, you know, you're, you're a guy who's 
dabbled in features. You've done a bit of screenwriting. You've got upcoming features going. You talked about the, uh, I guess, the benefit of a documentary film being something that like just knowing where to put your camera not necessarily having the budget and just having the inclination that a story is there to tell, to begin telling. What was the lure for you with Alan Pakula? Was this a, was this an itch to scratch for a long time? Like how, how did, how did you, how did you come to this man? Because I think right now it's a really strange and weird time. Like I, we've been trying to connect for a couple of weeks now, but it just feels like your documentary is now about to get a wider distribution and many more people are about to see it. And with the recent release of the parallax view on criterion collection, the world is kind of starting to be ready to reappraise Alan Pakula. Maybe we'll, maybe both of us were a couple of years ahead of that curve of, of this is a guy who makes important <laughs> films, but I, I just really want to start from the start with you and, and go, what was, what was that film? What was that entry point to his work that you said, man, this is, this is the kind of, filmmaker that I want to be. This is someone I really admire. Yeah. I mean, when I got exposed to him at first, I was probably nine or 10 years old and I was in a theater and I watched, um, I think it was Sophie's choice at the time. I had caught up with all the president's men because um, I came out in the mid seventies. I was way too young, but I did catch up with it during the eighties on VHS. And what I noticed more than anything about his films is they take a very documentary approach to things. And yes. I was always impressed by that. And I wanted to get into the film business and get into filmmaking because of Alan more so than other filmmakers. There was something about Alan's work that just was so real to me. I, I, I got into fantasy. I got into Star Wars and all the other stuff, Indiana Jones, et cetera. But I always felt like it was a little removed from me because it was very, you know, uh, Hollywood and it wasn't visceral. It wasn't like, Alan's work where I was just brought into it and I felt like I was watching history unfold same with Parallax View it's just like did that really happen you know like there was this <laughs> yeah. element of Alan like almost you know playing tricks with me um, and and the reason I got into filmmaking was because of Alan and you know I, I went into features and narrative feature directing at first but I realized that you know what I learned from Alan what my attraction was was documentary aspect uh of filmmaking so i went into that and i kind of pursued about four or five documentaries and completed them got distribution and then i realized alan's never had a documentary done and i actually wanted to meet him eventually and thank him but he died in 98 and i was kind of you know bereft about that and i just felt like what better way to thank this man than actually putting and piecing something together on him because he was the one responsible for me, you know, having interest in filmmaking, not that I can even get to his level. I don't think anyone really can, but he, uh, he never wanted the spotlight, which was so interesting to me. So I don't know if doing this documentary actually betrayed what he actually <laughs> wanted, but when I visited with his widow, Hannah, she had said, you know, he would probably really like your films because she had seen some of the stuff I had done and, She's, you know, she was very much embracing the fact that I wanted to do this because she is trying to protect and to elevate his legacy um, and try to make sure that he stays in the conversation. Because I do think, as you just mentioned, things keep circling around to have him in the conversation again. And, you know, the more we, you know, evolve in our country here and around the world, you're seeing kind of some of this stuff unfold. I mean, the article today that, ha that just came out on the film 
they were mentioning Parallax View in the same sentence as the Capitol riots. And it was like, wow, that's pretty remarkable <laughs> timing. So it's like, yes. you know, I, I just feel like he's going to have a moment and continue to have a moment as things progress. And, you know, I was so lucky to be able to tell the story that I, I don't I don't know why anyone else was avoiding it or maybe just not, you know, uh, I don't know, uh, wanting to approach it, but I felt like what a, what a grand career, what a grand man. And, you know, he didn't disappoint. Everyone who spoke about him was so complimentary and, you know, fulfilled what I had always believed about his work. Yeah. It's really, it's funny that you say that because, you know, I was in the midst of doing all the presidents men as a minute by minute podcast on this show. And I thought I would really like to do it in parallel with what I think I can comfortably say I hope to be the last year of Donald Trump's presidency and the unfathomable events of the year um, really continue to crystallize just how incredible, incredibly insightful and incredibly on point his work was and, and how resonant it continues to be. So it doesn't, doesn't surprise me in any fashion at all that you found that, uh, that people are starting to compare because the big thing is you can't mention the seventies really without mentioning Clute, Parallax View and all the presidents, man. You, you, you cannot mention it. Um, you would be doing yourself a disservice by talking about not talking about those films. Um, and so it's really funny that he, who's this really Titanic force in the middle of that is always been relegated to the sidelines. And it was such a joy. I must say just your film. Cause again, having been a person who spoke about him and his films for uh, about 120 hours last year, uh, I think, it was so great. I, I, I was maybe the, I, I, I could have been the opposite of like the person who knew it all, but it was so refreshing as a fan of Bakula to hear these incredible artists like universally be like, oh yeah, he was like amazing. Like he was great. He made us all feel good. <laughs> Everyone was just effusive. And it was like, yeah, it's really strange that, you know, just that choice of how, you know, how that kind of, uh, you know, Easy Riders and Raging Bulls generation there were some of the more self-mythological figures in that. Um, and I don't think one of them is Martin Scorsese, even though he seems to be the guy that people brandish as the top one. But, you know, the Coppolas and the De Palmas and things like that, there were cults of these men, the Lucases too. There were cults of these guys. And Pakula was a contemporary, but he just started out. You know, you're a New Yorker for life too. He started out as this, you know, erudite, sophisticated guy, you know, gets Harpalese rights are incredible um, you know, it's an incredible novel to, to adapt to begin with because he's a sophisticated guy and he just loves making movies. Yeah, I, I found uh, that same aspect about his career that, you know, he was this sophisticated and came from, and Tom Brokaw kind of echoed it. He came from like, you know, the establishment. He came from this intelligentsia. He was a Yale graduate and he brought that aspect to his filmmaking in the beginning, he was a producer. And I think that served him well when he went on to direct, but he was a producer for the better part of a decade and a half. And finally, you know, when he hit his stride with that paranoia trilogy, you're right. It's like, how do you not mention him in conversations about seventies and the great seventies films, you know, Soderbergh, I think said it best um, in the film where it's like, you know, there's that great moment when the Oscars are being handed out in 76 and they name all the films, Taxi Driver, All the President's Men, et cetera. And then Rocky gets it. And it kind of like, to me, that signified what we were about to experience for the next, you know, several decades. And I think we're still in 
um, this, and it, and it became, it happened because of Jaws too, but I think Rocky and that seminal moment of them winning the, that Oscar that year, it's like, it was part of, you know, where American filmmaking was headed. Yes. And it was indicative of what happened in the eighties into the nineties and beyond. And we haven't really returned to the seventies film, uh, that decade and what was being offered then. And there's talk of it now. I mean, Scorsese just came out with this article, uh, uh, you know, saying about cinema and what, what we've lost, but there's a hypocritical nature to it because he took Netflix and Apple money and he's, you know, coming down on the streamers yet he's making streaming movies. So it's like, it's hard for me to, you know, take that too seriously, but I think Pakula it would be interesting to know what he would have done now because his life was cut short, but would he have, you know, gone into, you know, the streaming universe and what would he have done? Would he have done a Marvel movie? You know, I asked that question to a few of the subjects and they said he would have, but he would have done a villain and he would have done some psychologically damaged villain <laughs> who, you know, is in the corner. You don't think of they wouldn't much, let but, uh, I'm, yeah. they wouldn't let him near a Marvel movie, Matthew. Let's be real clear. <laughs> They're never. No, so, he could have done the Joker. Yeah. Uh, OK, I'll, I'll give I'll give him I'll That's give him that. But cool. Look, it's 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 definitely reaching for something that Alan would do, but he would have kept it grounded in a more psychological reality. Like he just, he, I don't yeah. think he would have played any kind of. He's not the kind of guy. You just get the sense, especially in my impressions of all of his films, is you just get the sense that he's able to. I don't know. He he he's such a a, a director that is a fan of actors and how they internalize emotions and how that resonates in his films. Like for example. The Pelican Brief is a movie like this year I've tried my darndest and it's hard for me because anyone who knows listening, I very, very repetitive in my viewing habits, um, especially with films that really resonate with me because I really want to get under the hood and get into the corners of why these things do it on a philosophical level, on a technical level. Um, But I've watched Pelican Brief twice this year uh, and I'm just, I continue to marvel at, it is such, could be such pulpy trash, but Alan brings something <laughs> so incredible to it. Like this really on point and a little bit scary, realistic view of the political and intelligence community entanglement. And then how the media has evolved to be a corporate arm and may or may not be able to sort of tell the stories that it wants to tell because throughout the whole discussion of all the president's men, it was like, what are the films that actually get to show what journalism is now? And what's so funny is that like the Pelican brief, which is sort of staring him in the face is like, no, this is Pakula giving his updated commentary on what it is and what it has to be like and how these insiders are really going to start opening the doors to the next levels of conversations. And then you get the people, the torch carriers like Michael Mann's the insider that comes a little bit later, which is, you know, presidents and networks, you know, the child of both of those movies. Um, but yeah, I just, I think he, I, I, I you know, you, you never, you know, you never want to think about it. Cause I just don't want to think about Alan Pakula making uh, a Marvel movie, but I don't think that <laughs> I, I think, I think Alan would get kicked off of making a Marvel movie. I, like that's what would happen. He'd be like half make it. And they're like, no, nah, we can't use Pakula. Let's hire someone else. <laughs> well, he was very much in demand and, you know, he always delivered and, I think a couple of people had commented that, you know, his specialty was the fact that he took these 
obscure stories, these things that wouldn't be mainstream. And, you know, they gave him carte blanche and he made them, you know, kind of mainstream and made them into these really great movies. I'm talking specifically about Clute, mm. Parallax View, All the President's Men. But when you get on with Pelican Brief and with um, Presumed Innocent, I mean, those were huge novels. Those were, you know, things that he, you know, pretty much, you know, took a risk in trying to deliver what the novels delivered. And I think he succeeded on both fronts. But speaking of Pelican Brief, it was like, you know, Julia Roberts, the big thing there was when I interviewed her, she had said about how he, you know, she wanted to work with him so badly. She took two years off and was, you know, kind of unimpressed with Hollywood and where her career was headed. She came back into the fold with Pelican Brief and, you know, he took her in a totally different direction than what she was used to being regarded as and you know he says in the film that you know she kind of turned into went from being a girl to being a woman in that movie um and there's specific scenes that we point out in the documentary that you know reflect that but uh you know alan he's such a what's in, what's interesting that you mentioned about network you know i'm doing my next thing i'm doing is i'm patty chayefsky and i kind of put him in the same category of you know screenwriter director too bad they didn't work together but it's like those two guys are so ahead of the curve about what's happening and it's like even chayefsky stuff is starting to come you know network and the the parallels and the theories within that have kind of been around for the last 20 years but i don't know it's like those two guys when they were at their zenith working in the 70s it's like they had their finger on the a pulse that was you know 50 years in the future and I think we're starting to hear and feel the echo of it now. So that's why I'm concentrating now on, on Chayefsky. And it has, you know, an equally amazing cast coming together to talk about, you know, what Chayefsky was offering, um, which is in the same thing that Alan was, which is, you know, this highly uh, intelligent filmmaking that I think it missed a lot of the audience at the time and continues to. It's like, you really, like, you can't watch Parallax View once and, and just not, return to it and think about it and be like, wait, let me engage on that again. It's not a film like you just put on. You have to immerse yourself into it. And I don't think those films are streaming friendly. A lot of people, you know, they pause it, they come back the next day, whatever it is. But if you're in a theater and you're sitting and you've paid for it and you're really watching it, it brings you to another place. And, you know, what's interesting is um, when I interviewed Dustin Hoffman, he wasn't even aware of some of the things that Pakula was up to and all the president's men like Redford had said that you know he was discussing with Gordon Willis that the newsroom was so bright because that's where the truth was being you know brought to life and brought out of the shadows etc and then when you went out on the street and into the homes where these people were where Bernstein and Woodward were trying to uncover what happened it was all dark it was all into the shadows and it's like you know I brought that up to Dustin he's like I didn't even realize they were doing that that was <laughs> that's a revelation to me like wow I, you know I, I wish I'd have known that at the time. So it was like, you know, there's a lot of stuff there that went unsaid. And it's like only people who, you know, are kind of, I guess, sensitive, like Redford or Soderbergh or people like, you know, that I've t discussed it with, they get it. And they are like, you know, it, those unsaid things are to me what I value Pakula with most because he, he didn't go around saying, oh, well, this is what we did and this is why. He was never the one that wanted Spotlighter was in the interview you know, discussing it too much. It was always under the radar. Um, and, I, and I questioned if he wanted to have his career 
highlighted like this if you wanted me to delve into his personal life like I did. Um, but I felt like, you know, you want to uncover a little about the man behind these things because they are profound and they are, you know, celebrated films. I mean, a lot of people don't even talk about To Kill a Mockingbird, the fact that he produced that, you know, he the was the one who got the, the... The fact that your documentary got to, he got the book, he got the yeah. rights and that... Yeah. That he was introduced. And he was in his 20s. He was a young producer. I mean, a the guy young, was like a baby face producer. Baby face producer goes to meet one of the most infamous, famous authors in American literature and convinces her to take the book, meets her father, the character that the, you know, the, the ultimately the, the lead character is based upon. I mean, I just, that is just un, unbelievable. Like, uh, you know, yeah. That, and, that, and that's the first, that's the beginning of his career. career. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it really is amazing. And when you look at what Mulligan and Pakula produced in the 60s, I mean, that was serious work too. You know, a lot of that, those movies were not, you know, uh, typical of what was being offered. So to me, he was against the grain the whole way. And it's like, what better subject to delve into? Unfortunately, he's not around, but there were enough interviews done with him, not necessarily on television, but more like archival interviews for, I think, the Directors Guild and other places that I had a lot of material to work from, to have stuff in his own voice. Yeah, there's really, really incredible um, parts of the doco that you get, you know, because even doing this show, All the President's Minutes, it was one of those things where I was looking for clips all the time and you'd sometimes, they wouldn't be named right or, you know, you, you couldn't, they weren't just as simple as typing in Alan Pakula or All the President's Men. And sometimes you come across them later. Someone go, I found this link and it was on, you know, in, in a, in a, a thread and you look at it and you're like, wow, this guy actually talking about his work on the film is so impressive. But we've, we've talked about Steven Soderbergh a couple of times and I look at, you know, we talked about Julia Roberts. I look at Julia Roberts and I look at Steven Soderbergh and I, and at particular, I look at Aaron Brockovich and I'm just like, this is a marriage of a guy who is such a fan, a self-proclaimed fan and an ongoing revisiting Pakula's uh, work. Like, Aaron Brockovich doesn't exist without the Pelican Brief and particularly doesn't exist without all the president's men. Like that movie is such a, it is made, it is cut from the same cloth in, in the most unbelievable way. I mean, he makes two, he's Oscar nominated as a director for two films that year, Traffic and Aaron Brockovich. And it's just like an incredible feat to think that that's the guy. And he continues to have that, you know, that flow, that effortlessness in his career. And even as, even as lately, uh, even as late as, uh, um, the laundromat, you know, the, the laundromat mm -hmm. Soderbergh's recent one. Um, uh, it feels much in that same, you know, cut from that same cloth. Absolutely. And he was a disciple of Alan's and he, you know, he was obviously really upset when he died because I know he says like, Oh, I was getting to know Alan at the time. And they were, they were having conversations about, you know, film. And, um, he had just met Alan, you know, just prior to 98. Um, so they were talking and Alan had said to him, you know, if I was going to make a film, uh, I would have made, he said that the film, um, oh God, the videotape film, I can't think Sex of Lives and videotape. Sex Lives and videotape. <laughs> Sex Lives and videotape. He goes, that's a film I would have made. Like Alan was saying to him, like, I think he sought Steven out because it was such a, probably a big reaction from Alan. He's like, that was a film I would have made you know, and really effusive about it. Um, and that's why I think it was such a sore, uh, you know, thing that happened. And, and the way he died, you know, it's so crazy because 
you know, I do know that when I got to know the people who knew Alan, people in his development office, people in his production company, they were saying he was so careful about what he ate. And, you know, he would always say, even back then, he was like, oh, this causes cancer or this, 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 <laughs> that, and the other. And he was very like, you know, he was paranoid. But he was paranoid in a very innocent wait, wait, way. Wait, he wasn't wait, wait, like- the, the guy who made Clute, the parallax you and all the president's men was paranoid? It's <laughs> a shock. Well, my point is, is that he was paranoid. In no, like I'm, one just, of those, I'm, like, I'm just OCD being cheeky. Ways. Yeah. No, yeah. you know what I mean? But like, you know, an OCD way, not like he was a conspiracy theorist who was like out there and dressed <laughs> wacky. But, you know, he was like this OCD guy who had like, you know, who looked like he was straight out of a library at Yale. And, you know, he just... Uh, then he goes and down these roads, these rabbit holes of these movies. And you wonder, it's like, how deep does that, does that go? Yes. And uh, it's, it's really, uh, you know, he was so unassuming because I went to his apartment, visited with the widow. And it's like, you know, this guy, uh, there's no clue there that he was this person that would go down so deep, so layered in those films. Um, because it looked like it could have been a lawyer or an accountant or, a, you know, a professor's apartment. It wasn't something that was like, you know, there's these uh, big shelf of books about like who killed JFK, all that stuff. You know, it was like very normal stuff. There's a lot of psychology books, I should say, um, around. And he was very much that kind of guy to immerse himself in conversation about psychological, you know, impact and trauma that people had experienced as kids but you know I didn't I didn't I didn't get any clues just physically from his spaces that he he was in which I was hoping to but I didn't see it there's it's it's also a massive surprise I think because you know when you talk about the 70s period and now people are starting to discover those other things you know for example Yellowstone which is one of the biggest network shows in the world but in America um, you know, I caught comes a horseman as part of the project last year. And I'm like, hold on, wait, anyone who's watched Yellowstone, Taylor Sheridan, if you're listening, anyone who's watched Yellowstone has seen <laughs> comes a horseman with, you know, with, with robots and James Khan, um, uh, and Jane Fonda, they've seen it. Like it's, it's very much that sort of Titanic forces, external money, you know, the, the relationships of different family lines and ties you know he feels he feels like he's adding a lot to that obviously sophie's choice with meryl which is you know seminal just on a performative level and like a hit a, a, a cultural resonance in so much of his work but like later on it was much of a surprise and now it's great that the you know the pelican briefs of the world the presumed innocence of the world the devil's owns of the world are starting to find a, a, their levels of appreciation too because it feels like a lot of people you know when there's a glut of movies and things come by you know people can instantly dismiss things but now that there's a fertile period it feels like in the post 90s or maybe post 1990 that is now being tapped in these these things that were made in the studio systems that weren't necessarily part of the new wave of the, the the Tarantino era are starting to be revisited and going, actually, there's some really phenomenal stuff in here. And they may not have been all masterpieces, but when you, you know, look at them for their time and what they're trying to say, they're really doing some great stuff. No, I agree. I mean, I, I'm curious what your thoughts are because, you know, having an obsession with heat, all the president's men and, and Zodiac, et cetera, it's just like, you know, I'm a fan of those films too, but those films being made today are so few and far between it just seems like, are we going to 
get back to, are we going to have another renaissance of the seventies? You know, are we going to have a renaissance of some of these films that, you know, just are totally different and against the grain of Marvel and the big, I don't know. I feel like the pandemic for some reason, maybe it, maybe it was a refresher on Hollywood in a sense, like there might be some sort of, cause I don't think you're ever going to make a $200 million movie a $200 million marketing budget on, uh, you know, on top of that and get it back in the theaters like we used to. I could be wrong. Maybe there'll be a complete revolution and be like, we're going back to the theater in droves and it's going to be even bigger money that's coming in and they're going to continue this because you certainly can't do that with a Pakula film. If Pakula was alive today and they're like, let's put $30 million movie together and a, you know, a $10 million marketing budget, it, it wouldn't probably make its money back. And I don't know if that's because people aren't used to going to the theater anymore to see that kind of movie or the, the, uh, the crowd isn't there that wants to embrace that. I don't know. I mean, I just feel like well, times I'll, have changed enough where it's, it's over in a sense. I think it is. And it isn't because in Australia, there's a weird thing happening right now for like folks who are listening as we're talking, it's 18th of February, not 17th of February in the United States. And in Australia for the last like two or three weeks in a row, for the first time ever in our history, three Australian films are topping the box office. Hmm. it's never happened before. Interesting. It's ne- and look, they're not, they're not making, they're not making huge amounts of money. Like they're not making your 20, 30 million Avengers Endgame in our local box office, which is, you know, equivalencies on population to, um, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, et cetera, in the States, you know, when you ratchet up in population. However, the, um, one of the big, uh, I guess one of the big things is that, people are craving these different local stories. Like the, the three stories, one of them's a family tale, like a sort of quirky family tale. I think they're all based on um, uh, uh, I, um, uh, novels. One of them's an Eric Banner, you know, Outback Noir called The Dry. One's this um, sort of frontier uh, revisionist um, tale uh, set in post-World War One. you know, Outback Australia called High Ground. Um, this other one's called Penguin Bloom, stars Naomi Watts. So they've got some of our stars in them and things like that, but it, it's they're having a bit of a renaissance and a bunch of people in our industry have been commentating and having some thoughts like, man, don't you wish now Australia made some goddamn movies while we could because we could have one, two, three, four, five <laughs> because people want to go to the movies, to, especially adults. They want to go to the movies. They want to see films and the, the event is there that like maybe your kids who are like glued to their Disney plus subscriptions are going to see it. But like the, the event of a cinema is still there. Um, and, and I think, I think it's out there. I also just think that right now, the definition of like, what is a streamer versus what is going to get out to a cinema is it, it, sort of happening. And I think I'm okay with the hip, hypocrisy of Martin Scorsese criticizing the glut of like, uh, AI giving you recommendations versus curation because people will pay Martin Scorsese to make movies. Cause if Hollywood really cared and it'd be like, how do you lose Scorsese? How do you lose Alfonso Cuaron? You don't give them any money to make movies. And then you, when you release it, you don't give it to a streamer so that more people can see it. You know, it just seems like mm-hmm. it's a counterintuitive thing. Uh, you know, in my mind, I think that there's plenty of, I think there's plenty of opportunities for new kind of Pakula voices to come out and it's going to be really interesting what happens. I'm personally interested on a local level in Australia, like going, okay, cool. More adult ish focused Australian films might actually make the money because people want to go and see Australian based stories at the cinema and getting in before the, you know, the U S cinema comes back alive and then dominates again. I'm, I'm, I'm actually kind of interested. Well, maybe it will, maybe it will come from a foreign 
influence because I what my my I really loved last year was, was that Korean film won every award and Parasite, you know, yeah. it dominated and it was like wow that that also was a, I felt like a film Pakula would have made oh yeah and it was like you know you have to follow the money a great line from all the president's pen it's like if Hollywood sees that that's what's happening they're going to go down that road they're going to make more of those films and it's like you know I just hope that moment wasn't lost by this washed out year and a half that we're experiencing of you know no films being really uh produced but but it's, just uh, but just imagine right matt even you know now more intimately than anyone all the president's men what kind of budget did i have under 10 million at the time so if we ratchet it up even mm. like for crazy inflation let's just say it was like 40 50 million dollars it does have the biggest movie star in the world and it's going to open on a bunch of screens. It absolutely made its budget back. And I think I just think that also that you know this glut, this marketing, like here, add twenty million here, do those sorts of things. You know, even the streamers themselves are frustrating because they release these movies and then they don't spruik them. You know, I think that some of the smaller streaming services actually are doing themselves a good service because like when they've got a new big release, it's on the front page of their streaming service. Whereas like sometimes with Netflix, you hear about a movie coming out and it's just not even in the front not being curated you're like where is it where's this new movie hold on where's that where did that go so yeah i i i think i think there's definitely room you know i think there's definitely room and i think you only have to look at just how influential his work has been it's just like people are looking at ip all the time you know i feel like when you Mm. look at alan's work it's like there'll be a television adaption there might be a remake there might be something maybe not of the the holy trinity in the middle of his career or the president's man parallax include but you certainly see that actually maybe clue um you know getting readapting and trying to do a little bit more more clue tales but not necessarily about fonda's character um but yeah i i feel like um it's pretty right it's pretty right for stuff like he had an instinct for these kind of emotionally complex things that people could really engage with no i agree and i, I i'm hoping that this documentary resonates enough with the people, because there's so many disciples of Bakula's in Hollywood, um, you know, that got into the business the same way I did. And, you know, we're raised on these films. And I do, I do hope that this film resonates with some of them to, you know, kind of bring about some of these films again, because, you know, I certainly bemoan the fact that they're not made as much, but, uh, you know, it's funny because the films that you highlight, All the President's Men and Heat, those things kind of got what was heat's box office it wasn't huge i know that that got its no. audience afterward about, right about, yeah about i think about 60 million in the states i don't know what that like it, it was it kind of made its budget back but it was right. an altogether largely abandoned movie when like you know when you look at it later and you're like it didn't get any love from the academy no. it's got two of the greatest you know cinematic men of all time in it it's got michael mann and directing did you ever got... talk to van zant no i didn't <laughs> no i didn't get to talk to van zant um i actually know i know william fickner pretty well um i've Look, met with him a few matt matt <laughs> this is what i'm going to tell you on this show we still continue to put out the odd one heat minute we were lucky enough to have michael man but as as early as a month ago um we put out a special bonus episode because i was able to talk to tom sizemore um, oh yeah. I, I saw a clip of that. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I would, I would just say to you, you know, if you, if you know Van Zandt, <laughs> we can, we can hook it up afterwards. I'd love to talk to Mr. Fickner, but, um, but yeah, I, it's funny that it's kind of a band. It, it was kind of abandoned and look, 
strangely enough, All the President's Men was one of the most lauded films that so far on our, 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 our sort of ongoing series of these deep dive examinations has actually received critical acclaim at the time that it actually deserved it. And it's only crystallized because of how unbelievable 1976 was as a filmmaking year um, that, that you kind of start to freak out a bit about like, Oh my God, like the same year as network, the same year as taxi driver, like what is going on? Um, You know, because of all these, this confluence of huge films and how important and impactful they are. But yeah, um, even Zodiac, you know, made in 2007, it kind of was drowned by the, there will be blood, no country for old man, Michael Clayton's of the world and kind of disappeared off the face of the earth. And then because of, you know, Fincher being a kind of carrying the torch of almost Kubrick, if you like, um, has, has sort of now grown into, into a sort of cult reputation of its own. No, absolutely. I, I remember when that came out and I was like riveted and I was, I was, I was hoping that it was going to get more and, you're right. It did get a little bit drowned that year. Now thinking about those two films you mentioned, but uh, I like Michael Clayton as well. I thought that that was a good movie. That's a movie uh, that Alan would make. That's a movie that it, Alan would, it make was too. a movie Alan make. And actually, Clooney. I interviewed Clooney for a different film, but I wanted to get him for this as well because I know Stephen had said he and George, when they were partnered up, they were definitely talking about Pakula films, and that's the kind of things they wanted to do. And you know, I, I do think that Clooney kind of is I, I, the recent one he did on the, you know, the space, uh, the one that he did the on not, Netflix. The Midnight Sky, yeah. Yeah, I felt like that was definitely Pakula-esque. And it's like he's he's an interesting guy. I mean, he definitely is carrying a torch there as well, because I think he was definitely impacted in those well, years good, when he good, was. Good night and good luck. You know, uh, there's, yeah. a, there's a whole... You know, if, 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 if the, the great text of like journalism movie is in my mind, all the president's men, I think everything else is secondary and I'm extremely biased in saying that. And I'm sure you probably have to, but like, you know, it's like president's men and network are very close to one another. And then you've got the next high crop of quality films are like the insider and good night and good luck. And even frost Nixon to a certain extent, broadcast news, the paper, you know, there are, there are good journalism movies all over the place. Um, uh, but yeah, like I think, you know, he's he's definitely operating in that same area. That's for sure. Yeah. And I, as I said, I wanted to talk to him about Pakula. And it's like, you know, there are these things, you know, he's a big Chayefsky, I think, fan as well. So it's like eventually I'll circle back around to him. But it's just, uh, you know, I could have talked to so many more people. A lot of them have passed away. Um, you know, that new Pakula, it would have been a smorgasbord of people. But you know, you can keep going and going. I think I interviewed close to a hundred people total. And it's, uh, you know, it's sad because it's like, what could have been, he died when he was 70, but you know, his parents lived well under their nineties. So he had at least a couple of decades, I think of quality films to go. So it's like the fact that he was cut short, it's, it's unfortunate because what could have been, what would have been in his mind to do, um he had a lot of plans and the, the last film he was working on when he died was one on fdr because fdr was when he was growing up you know back in the 30s and i'm sure that would have been you know a really interesting take on fdr and his life so and eleanor jane alexander for eleanor yeah that's right that's right she told us absolutely that. what a yeah what a what a uh, sliding doors moment for Jane, who's mm-hmm. been basically essaying that character in a variety of forms for 
decades and coming back with Alan after, you know, what I think is probably one of the scenes, one of the scenes of the seventies in the strongest decade of American cinema ever, maybe one of the greatest scenes that's ever been committed to film, uh, you know, uh, and, and he probably, probably one of his proudest scenes as well. And just how effortless he, they constructed that and getting them together in a full film would have been pretty, pretty damn special. What is your favorite? It would have been. What's your favorite Bacula film, Matt? Are you allowed to say? My favorite? Mm. I don't know. I feel like... I feel like Presumed Innocent was one of the highlights for me because of what he did with Harrison. Yes. And I I, I actually, I, I asked Harrison about it. I said, you know, you know, the fact that you're Indiana Jones, now you're in this movie, like you're kind of like going against who you are and he got annoyed with me because he's like what do you mean i'm an actor i do it. i'm like yeah but you were known for this and now you're doing this so he went off about the haircut he was given etc but i just felt like that film really pulled you through successfully if you didn't know the book if you didn't know the wife was the one not to spoil it but i did but it's amazing <laughs> that you know you get pulled all the way to the end without without really knowing and that's hard to do a lot of people predict but to me, it's like, you know, he, he took you on a ride with that film, although that's an 80s thing. And that like that was part of Sophie's Choice, Presumed Innocent Pelican, et cetera. But, you know, I guess. I mean, I he has have... he has he has a couple of Harrison Ford in that period feels like he leapt away from what he was known for from like 85. He does Witness, which is still one of my favorite films of yeah. all time. Mosquito and Coast. And an Australian with Peter Weir, right? Peter, yeah, the, gra- Coast. the great Peter Weir. Yeah, so he goes, Witness, Mosquito Coast. Uh, he's got Frantic and Working Girl in there, and then he has the next Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade, which is 89. And then he rolls straight from that into Presumed Innocent. And so it's just, <laughs> yeah, I I, I I tend to agree. It's it's this whole, um, it's a it's a cha- like it's a, a fun, like a little challenge uh, in his in, in his career. Um, yeah, of, of like fighting against that typecasting, but I think he's done a pretty damn good job. I mean, when you when you Rick Deckard, um, who's on a you know picture behind me as we're talking that the people listening won't be able to see, but like when you Rick Deckard and Han Solo and Indiana Jones, um, it's to do anything else and to do it really well and to be able to immerse yourself into the role. Like, and even later, like Dr. Richard Kimball and uh, Jack Ryan, like it's just like his career is just like insane insane yeah. for these iconic characters that he's able to embody and but yeah like i i i think presumed innocent is having a new life too because people are going back and going man this is just like so many great actors and all of the coolest movies you just get all these great actors and everyone's doing great work and you're just like wow how, how did this ha- when did when did they stop making movies that have all great actors like that's the thing that stump stumps me every time with something like the pelican brief it's like look at how many great actors are in this movie like just pound <laughs> for pound every role just completely unbelievable and you just yeah that's a it's it's inc- incredibly special thing that he was able to do no just- i agree yeah i mean a lot, of, a lot of people wouldn't say oh presumed innocent but i i i'll put it up there only because of what i had said about harris and I, I feel like that was there's an interesting take on him in that which i appreciate matt look it's been a real treat talking to you um and it's actually a huge treat to finally have seen 
the film um for anyone who's in australia just uh, uh the best thing that you guys can do is jump onto jif uh jewish international film festival so jiff.com.au go search for alan bakula going for the truth it, it is actually coming this weekend um so you can book tickets literally as you're listening now if you're listening to it as this episode drops this bonus episode um just have a listen um that would be amazing but uh look matt I'm I was absolutely target audience um, and I think anyone who listened to the duration of this show is absolutely target audience too so um, um, we will I can pretty safely say that everyone will enjoy it um, it's so amazing that you're able to document you know and, and bring light to this guy even though he maybe wouldn't have wanted it but I tell you what all of his fans um, want it want him in the spotlight because he's made some incredible films that are deeply resonant um, and enduring. So, look, just thank you so much for for having a chat with me, and uh, best of luck with the thank film. You. I can't I can't wait to consume it again when it uh, it comes in its full release. <laughs> thank you again. Yeah, thank you for having me. And uh, yeah, please check out the film. It needs all the support we can get, and uh, it'll have wider distribution eventually. It's just uh, you know it's starting to bubble up in Hollywood at the moment. Well, reach out anytime, and uh, and next time we talk to William Fickner's Van Zandt after the next call, we'll make sure we spruik uh, Alan Pakula going for the truth. <laughs> Thanks, Matt. Have all the best. All right, sounds good. Thank you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.